So last year I spoke with you after surgery that summer for a total left hip replacement. And the year before that, I spoke with you a little bit about my mother who had a stroke. And because she'd had a stroke, I felt like I was able finally to talk a little bit more publicly about some of the difficulties being in relationship with someone who struggles with any kind of mental illness. And spoke about the fact that we had been estranged for several years. So last high holidays, uh, healing, feeling strong, and come to Simchat Torah, and I get a call from my aunt that my mother died, Erev Simchat Torah. As I said earlier today, my father died almost 20 years ago on Erev Pesach, so not to be outdone, my mother died on Erev rejoicing with the Torah. So this is her yard site time. So I was, because of the relationship I had with my mother, a very difficult relationship, I was completely unprepared for the freight train of grief that slammed into my life and my soul and took me down for three days. I don't think my daughter had ever seen me in that state and didn't quite know what to do. It was that bad. And I was completely shocked I thought I'd done all the grieving because we had been apart for so long. But in talking with other people who have had this experience, the way I get my head and heart around it is that that other person was in the way of my longing and yearning for my mom, for the mother I adored, the mother who anchored me in time and space, who cuddled me and petted me, encouraged me and tickled me and laughed with me. This other person and the relationship that we couldn't have was in the way of the love and the longing I felt for mom, for mommy. And so I was completely unprepared for the grief. And I thought about longing and why is it that we have such a hard time with longing and yearning and what is that about our fear of it and of course it's because we're afraid we're going to be hurt again we've all been hurt and so we become afraid of vulnerability but for those of us who've experienced trauma it's a little different for those of us who have dealt with trauma there are very classic reactions to a triggering event. Dissociation, hyperarousal, isolation, avoidance, and shame as one lovely package, and a repetition of the traumatic circumstances. I have been wanting to learn more about trauma and about how we handle it and cope with it and heal from it, because I told you two years ago that forgiveness was not the model for me. Forgiveness was not the paradigm for me in the relationship with my mother, because she'd do it again if she had the opportunity. Instead, it was about healing. And how can we take 
those things that hurt and turn them uh, into some kind of empathy through healing. And so I saw the new book by Rabbi Tirza Firestone, who's an incredible teacher and lecturer and writer. And Rabbi Tirza Firestone's new book is Wounds into Wisdom, Healing Intergenerational Jewish Trauma. She will be at the Malibu Jewish Center November 9th for a Havdalah event. So we've made flyers. Uh, if there aren't any left, um, we will be sending you an e-blast with this information. So I hope that you'll come hear her lecture on this work, this really important work, uh, on Saturday night, November 9th, as a Havdalah event with the Malibu Synagogue. We are co-sponsoring that event. And what her book is really about is she's, she asks the question, how do we transform our traumas into consciousness, wisdom, and moral leadership? That's right up my alley. And she writes in her book, signals from limbic brain, the alarm brain, bypass normal mediating centers that evaluate and judge our situation. And the flight, fight, freeze instinct kicks in and puts us in a highly triggered state. So one of the ways we can know we're coming out of real pain and real trauma is when we're triggered by something that's really a fairly normal everyday exchange. For instance, when Judy, as I'm leaving the house, says, drive carefully. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not gonna drive carefully. What? Drive carefully? I'm gonna drive 80 miles an hour down Palisades. Of course I'm gonna drive carefully. Indication one might be coming out of, something other than what just happened. Because what she means is, I care about you, and I want you to get somewhere safely. I love you. But that's not what we hear when we're in a triggered state. All we hear is, what, I'm not normally a good driver? Normally I'm an uncareful driver? I'm a completely on purpose reckless driver, is what you're saying. That's not what she's saying. But that's how we can feel when we're in a state like that. And Tirza Firestone writes, as an unchecked residue of trauma, that's what we call hyperarousal, what you just saw a demonstration of, hyperarousal can take a serious toll on the nervous system, spelling adrenal exhaustion, insomnia, extreme moodiness, and difficulty simply taking life in. When high stress becomes a way of life, not only do our stress hormones stay elevated, but neural pathways that tell us the world is unsafe get reinforced, thereby training us to stay in high arousal. Our capacity to relax and take in simple pleasures becomes strained, and we are more likely to become activated by everyday stresses, especially ones that recall our original trauma. When we're in that state, we can't even take in the very things that help mitigate that state. These are typical responses that she's talking about to trauma. And so we each have to be really good at noticing what's happening for us. But it's not only individuals who suffer these kinds of reactivity around trauma. Rabbi, I keep calling her Rabbi. Do, it's a compliment, I tried to say earlier. Um, Dr. Rachel Yehuda is a professor of psychiatry and neuroscience and the director of the Traumatic Stress Studies Division of Mount Sinai School of Medicine. She studies the epigenetics of trauma and how we inherit it from generations before us. She writes, we found, and this was very surprising to us, that Holocaust offspring 
had the same neuroendocrine or hormonal abnormalities that we were viewing in Holocaust survivors and persons with post-traumatic stress disorder. So what they're finding, both Dr. Yehuda and uh, Rabbi Firestone, what they're looking at are the ways that we inherit a certain amount of trauma as a society, as a collective. We Jews have quite a history that would lend itself to communicating some trauma. Most recently, of course, the devastation of the Shoah, of the Holocaust. There's one researcher who does this work who suggests that as Americans, we've inherited trauma by the founding of our nation being on the genocide of Native Americans and the suffering and torture of African-American slavery. So what that means is we as Jews and we as Jewish Americans, we have a certain amount of collective inherited trauma. If you think the reaction that we have as a Jewish community around the conversation regarding Israel, if you think that's normal, it's not. I truly believe when certain existential threats, when we perceive someone else's opinion as an existential threat to Israel, to the survival of the Jewish people, we have a, an absolutely normal stress response and we flip out. Things go right past the mediating part of the brain that usually kind of assesses these things. And we go right into reactivity. And we're ready sometimes to see a gathering of Jews like this as just a great big target. Just a great big bullseye. Because we see anti-Semitism everywhere. And when we stay in that hyper-aroused state, it reinforces that the world is unsafe. Completely unsafe. That is not to say we shouldn't take anti-Semitism seriously. Of course. And of course we should be impassioned about how we feel about this or that issue, whether it's about Israel. But come on, people. Our political discourse right now? If that isn't hyper-aroused reactivity, I don't know what is. We can't have a sane civil conversation because it has become existential. The other represents an existential threat. Okay, this can sound like a bummer, I know. I know. <laughs> but Dr. Yehuda says... I think the purpose of epigenetic changes is simply to increase the repertoire of possible responses. I don't think it's meant to damage or not damage people. It just expands the range of biologic responses. And that can be a very positive thing when that's needed. Who would you rather be in a war zone with? Somebody that's had previous adversity and knows how to defend themselves? Or somebody that has never had to fight for anything, but might be very advantaged in many other social and cultural ways? So we tend to talk about all this stuff as damage as brokenness, as scarring, and to some extent, that's true. That's absolutely true. But the same epigenetic changes, the same chemistry that gets impacted by trauma and inherited trauma also responds to treatment, responds to a loving witness who's ready to hold our experience with us, who's ready to understand who we are, who's ready to hold us 
in whatever's going on for us. And just having the information is empowering and not disempowering. Dr. Yehuda gives an example of this. She says, there was one time in one of the Holocaust groups, one of the women was talking about something stressful that had happened at work. It was in a group psychotherapy session and it was a terrible story. But then she stopped and she said, I remembered that Dr. Yehuda said, I have poor shock absorbers and so I should just let it pass. Because my biology is going to have extreme responses before it calms down. And then I did. And it really worked. And Dr. Yehuda writes, I didn't say that. I wasn't that clever. But what was so interesting was how she had internalized the information that her stress system was more responsive and had used it to actually calm down all by herself in response to a stressful situation. So I pointed out that, of course, because it had nothing to do with me. It was the power of having the information. We can just notice when we're having a conversation and it starts to feel super wonky or super charged, we can just notice, okay, I'm getting triggered. Something about this person's worldview is making me nuts. And we can calm down. We have to take responsibility as a community for the tone and tenor of our conversations right now. We have to take responsibility for the ways that we get all reactive and start coming at each other because it's tearing the American community apart. It's tearing our institutions apart. It can tear the Jewish people apart. I'm studying at the Hartman Institute and one of the things that uh, Donia Hartman said to us is he said, I want us talking, us Israeli Jews and American Jews because it cannot happen on our watch that American Jews and Israeli Jews walk away from each other. It cannot happen on our watch. Well, I want to say the same thing to us. We cannot walk away from each other. Not on our watch. Whatever it is that's the issue, whatever it is that's getting us all reactive and crazy, it's okay to be crazy. We're human. That's how we're built. That's how we're designed. As long as we take seriously the responsibility for our own healing and for our own reactivity. And that means we also have to be in touch with our yearning and our longing to be close to each other because that's one of the things that heals us. That we know that from all the research. So if we can be vulnerable, if we can risk being hurt to tell somebody, I need you. For me to calm down enough to say to Eliana, I only snapped at you because you scared me and I love you and I don't want anything to happen to you. If we can just own it when it happens. If we can just let each other in. If we can allow ourselves to need each other. I think we can contribute to the healing of our society. Rabbi Firestone writes, all over the world, cultures and groups are being dislocated by war, poverty, and climactic changes, and fresh wounds are being incurred daily to refugees, religious groups, indigenous tribes, and entire ethnicities. The more we understand the ways in which trauma works and the deeper our compassion for the plight of those who suffer, including our ancestors and our own selves, 
the more we have to offer our world. She's saying the world has never needed it more than now. But again, we have to be ready to be vulnerable, to be close. I closed last night with the first part of Rabbi Maggie Wenig's beautiful piece about God being a woman who's growing older. The mother sitting at the kitchen table waiting for us to come home. It's a challenging image, but one that I find quite poignant and beautiful. At this first Yom Kippur where I know I will never see my mother again. Rabbi Winnig writes, as you recall, she ended the piece last night where I stopped saying that God is waiting for us to come home and we're too busy. But what if we did, she writes, what if we did go home and visit God? What might it be like? God would usher us into her kitchen, seat us at her table, and pour two cups of tea. She's been alone so long that there's much she wants to say. But we barely allow her to get a word in edgewise, for we're afraid of what she might say, and we are afraid of silence. So we fill an hour with our chatter, words, words, we're so many words. Until finally, she touches her finger to her lips and says, shh, shh, be still. Then she pushes back her chair and says, let me have a good look at you. And she looks. And in a single glance, glance, God sees us as both newly born and dying. And when she's finished looking at us, God might say, so tell me, how are you? And now we are afraid to open our mouths and tell her everything she already knows, whom we love, where we hurt, what we have broken or lost, what we wanted to be when we grew up. So we changed the subject. Remember the time when, yes, I remember, she says, and suddenly we're both talking at the same time. I'm sorry that that's all right. I forgive you. I didn't mean to. I know that. I do. We look away. I never felt I could live up to your expectations. I always believe you could do anything, she answers. Then God reaches out and touches our arm, bringing us back to the present and to the future. You will always be my child, she says. But you are no longer a child. Grow old along with me, the last of life for which the first was made. God holds our face in her two hands and whispers, do not be afraid. I will be faithful to the promise I made when you were young. I will be with you. Even to your old age, I will be with you. When you are gray-headed, still I will hold you. I gave birth to you. I carried you. I will hold you still. Grow old along with me. Are we ready to long and yearn? Are we ready to come back to the kitchen table? Are we ready to be loved?